Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our top story, Iran striking back, firing more than a dozen missiles at Iraqi air bases, hosting U.S. troops. Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif tweeting the following. Iran concluded proportionate measures in self-defense, adding, we do not seek escalation or war, but will defend ourselves against any aggression. The focus now, assessing the damage done. A U.S. official insisting there were no U.S. casualties. And as Tom points out, the president expected to address the nation later today. Here's the take from Eurasia Group. Quote, Iran's attacks appeared designed for maximum domestic effect with a minimum escalatory risk. Trump will likely decline to retaliate militarily. Eurasia joins us now. Henry Rome, Eurasia Group Global Macro Analyst, joins us on the phone. Henry, great to catch up with you. Walk me through what gives you the conviction that Iran has managed to appease the discontent at home and minimise the prospect of escalatory risk in the region. Hi, good morning, Tom and John. I think at this point, what our, our, our biggest question going into last night was what Trump would do once Iran strikes back. We were fairly convinced that Iran would, would, would do so. The domestic pressure was extreme. And, 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 and I think looking at what Iran pulled off last night with no U.S. casualties and a clear statement from the leadership that this, that this round is over, I think gives us confidence that the president can come out today and say mission accomplished essentially a a, a perhaps a speak uh, a speech right. version of his tweet last night all as well the last time we said mission accomplished that didn't work out so well what what is going to be the outcome of a president saying in his press conference mission accomplished how will the, that be taken by capitol hill and far more how will that be taken by tehran yeah, well, that's uh, perhaps a bad uh, choice of words on my part, but but I think the, the Iranians will uh, take that positively, frankly. Look, I mean, we are not out of the woods yet. I want to emphasize that point. The, the, the Iranians, I, I, I don't think, uh, consider the debt of, of the Soleimani assassination to be fully paid, and I think we'll see a return to the kind of low-level attacks, uh, especially in the cyber world and in terms of terrorism that that the Iranians have have perfected over the decades. But in terms of a risk of a direct military clash, I think assuming the president comes out and says uh, we got the job done, then 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 I think that risk has gone down. Henry, let's talk about objectives. Secretary Pompeo said he wanted to establish an effective deterrence. The question now is whether taking out General Soleimani was enough. And after the events of last night, will they feel confident that they have established a deterrence with that airstrike last week? Well, I think they will. I think the the U.S. will be able to point to this moment for quite a few, I mean, certainly years, if not longer, down down the line to demonstrate a um, uh, what it, what it looks like when the U.S. loses patience uh, with with Iranian activity. So, so I think the, the Iranians are are fairly uh, chastened by what happened, and and you saw that with what they decided to do last night. They launched. Sophisticated ballistic missiles, absolutely, but they caused no casualties, and it was a a single round, if you will, of retaliation. I think that demonstrates that the Iranians were were quite spooked. But, Henry, this is so important. I mean, it's like a sterile kind of retaliation. As you say, there were no casualties, at least based on president's reports. Is that any way to run a war? 
Well, I mean, uh, we were we 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 were expecting the Iranians to incur some casualties, uh, but it, but it looks as though there was a good deal of concern about what that um, what that would cause. I, I mean, sometimes I mean, with with things like this, you you often there is um, there's risk in overinterpreting actions of a of a kinetic type that we don't know if it was an accident or intentional that that nobody was was killed here. But I think the totality of the events last night seem to indicate that the Iranians uh, decided to tone it down a notch. Henry, I think what was surprising for many, even experts looking at the country, is that this was a conventional strike launched from Iran by Iranian forces. It was direct forces to direct forces. This wasn't via proxies. This wasn't at US allies. And I think that's what everyone was quite surprised by, Henry. Do you really think that we can just move on from that as the days progress? Well, I, I mean, I think we can move on in terms of uh, th- there'll be a return to a kind of low level of, of conflict that's kind of pervaded over the past few years and extraordinary levels of, of tension and, and a good deal of concern, especially about the Iranian nuclear program, which I think is a clear option uh, for the Iranians to continue to escalate at this point. But, but I would say that the risk and 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 panic about a Iran-U.S. military-to-military confrontation that takes out uh, shipping in the Persian Gulf, destroys energy infrastructure in a big way. I think that risk has gone way down after last night. If you're just joining us, Henry Rome with us. He is with Eurasia Group. And of course, we've been featuring their top risks of 2020. And, and we were thrilled that Dr. Rome could uh, be with us here a few days ago and now joins us on this important morning. What I heard this morning Uh, Henry, from uh, Rupert Harrison over in London with his government work with the United Kingdom, from Sir Tom Beckett with on-the-ground experience uh, in uh, the Middle East, and from Ambassador Hormatz was very simple. The tone of the president. What kind of tone should the president affect this morning? Well, I think the most uh, productive from uh, kind of trying to de-escalate the conflict would be not to go on a victory parade about the killing of General Soleimani, not to kind of rub it in the Iranians' face, either the, the assassination or the ineffectiveness of the uh, missile launch last night. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the president's style. I mean, the, uh, I think it would have, things would have turned out quite differently if the U.S. had actually just not claimed responsibility uh, for the Soleimani assassination, as, as you know, in, in the kind of Israeli practice of just letting it be, uh, letting it be vague. But 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 I think the president will find it hard not to boast uh, and and perhaps gloat a bit this morning. But I think at the end of the day, as as, as long as he's somewhat restrained, and I I would hope that the past few days have demonstrated to him clearly uh, the the risks that going up against Iran can entail, then then, then I would expect things to, um, to be all right. Henry, by now we're all familiar with the president's approach, but over the last 12 hours he has been quite restrained. We have had a single tweet suggesting he'll address the nation later this morning. It made me just wonder what was happening inside the White House last night, why the president was so restrained, the decision-making process at the White House, who is informing the decision-making process? Are they providing a menu of responses for the President of the United States again or strongly counselling for the President to do one thing over the other? Your thoughts on what's happening right now as the United States calculates its response? 
Sure. I, I I would expect that 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 the military, as always, will provide him a range of of options. So I think uh, at, at at this stage, he will be strongly counseled to take this blow and uh, call it a day, if you will. I and, think the risk of retaliating significantly and and having this spiral further is just very high. And I think he's at a He's at a point now politically where he can claim victory. One final question for you, Henry. China's role. Expected to be in the United States next week on January 15th for a signing ceremony. Closer to the Iranians, certainly more so than the United States. What do you think their role will be in the coming weeks if they will establish one at all? So I think from the Chinese point of view, their big uh, objectives here with regards to Iran is no war and no nuclear weapon. And everything else in between there is negotiable. I think as the Iranians continue to escalate on the nuclear program, the Chinese are one of the more important countries to watch about how much pressure they exert on Iran to try to keep things contained. So, yes, they are closer to Iran, but they also have a lot of leverage. So I, I would expect them to play an active, albeit quiet, role in trying to tone things down or urge the Iranians to tone things down. Henry Rome, thank you so much with your Asia Group this morning as we uh, move through the morning with the markets doing better. John Farrow now in our studios, an important guest. An important guest, indeed. Great to have you with us. Bob Hormats, Kissinger Associates, Vice Chairman. Ambassador, always great to catch up with you. Great to be with you. The Allies have gone missing. Where are they? Where are the Europeans? Why are they not more vocal over the last week? Well, I think the U.S. has kept Europe more or less out of its diplomacy on a wide range of issues. Uh, There are obviously major trade frictions, uh, and the U.S. did not notify its allies with respect to the strike and the killing of uh, General Soleimani and doesn't seem to have been engaging the Europeans on virtually anything that has to do with the Middle East, which is a major departure from the past when the United States worked hand-in-glove with the Europeans on a wide range of Middle Eastern issues. Not always convincingly, but at least it worked with them. There is a hope this morning that we avoid escalation risk, underlined by the fact that we're just hearing from a U.S. official that there were no U.S. casualties in those strikes overnight. But the question remains, America's future in Iraq. What is it, Bob? Well, I think for the moment now, we understand that we need to do what we can, I hope we understand at least, to to help stabilize a very unstable Iraqi situation. Uh, If Iraq continues to deteriorate and become more unstable, there are two beneficiaries. One is Iran. Iran's already extremely influential in Iraq because Iraq is predominantly a Sunni, a Shia country, although Saddam was Sunni, the government now, and most of the leaders are Shia. And the other is that the Russians now having made major uh, steps forward in increasing their influence in Syria, will now be aiming to increase their influence in Iraq as well. Putin's visit to Syria, I'm sure, was not an accident. It probably was planned before the killing of Soleimani, but um, now he is playing a major role in Syria and will probably attempt to do so to a greater degree in Iraq. The Russians and and the Iranians don't always get along, but they both want to defeat ISIS, and they both, uh, I think, will be competing for influence 
but also trying to cooperate to the extent they can. And, and, and Iran wants to get the U.S. out of the region. Uh, so does Russia. Well, the that question final is, point. will they work together to do it or will they also have conflict between them? Ambassador, that final point is perhaps the most important point. When you try and illuminate the path forward, what the future looks like, you have to look at individual objectives. And quite clearly, the Iranians making it clear overnight. Their objective is not war, but their objective is to get the United States out of the region. How do they go about doing that? Well, that's a complicated thing. First of all, they inc- have increased their influence in Baghdad, uh, as, as we've seen. And second, now they're going to portray the U.S. Uh, in an adverse light as a result of all this and demonstrate that they uh, have backed off and tried to de-escalate and want to play a greater role. They don't want more tensions in the region. They're going to advertise that point as well. But uh, the, the other is that they still want to demonstrate that they're um, going to be tough on ISIS, that ISIS is not defeated, and Iraq needs them to defeat ISIS. And if the U.S. is an uncertain ally and an mm. uncertain presence, then the Iraqi government will have to call on them to a greater degree to make sure ISIS doesn't right. uh, undergo resurgence. Ambassador Hormats, you served uh, the nation under both Republicans and Democrats uh, over the years. The last tour of duty was Secretary Clinton and with President Obama. What do we most get wrong about the day of a given Secretary of State. I mean, we see Secretary of State Pompeo come out and make comments and that, what's the behind the scenes reality for any Secretary of State, particularly given this moment? Rule one for the Secretary of State is make sure of two things. One, that you have influence over the president, that the president listens to you, that you have access to the president, that you are heard uh, not only by the president, by, but by his national security apparatus in the White House. The, but the second is that you understand what the president wants, uh, because the most confusing thing to other countries is if the secretary of state says one thing or thinks one thing and the president says or thinks something else, it's very confusing to both our allies, because they don't know who to listen to, and to our adversaries, since they're not sure um, and, what to do, and, and therefore they tend to take advantage of those gaps. And John, we saw that, of course, with this question about the cultural targets within Iran, and that had to be Well, it's a final question. Let's ask it. How much daylight is there between what Secretary Pompeo would like to do and what the President of the United States ultimately wants? Hard to say at this point, but uh, Secretary Pompeo has taken, in general, a much tougher line on Iran. Uh, The President ran for office on the grounds of pulling the U.S. back from the Middle East in general. So there clearly are differences in emphasis. In the end, the president, of course, prevails in these things. He's the commander-in-chief. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today. Ambassador Robert Hormass, he's with Kissinger Associates. Joining us now in studio is a gentleman who's truly expert on this. Uh, Greg Farrell was a, a distinguished career in journalism, uh, looking at process of courts, not criminality, not civil issues, but just simply the making of the process. What is the process of this press conference? What are your thoughts after observing an hour and five minutes, Greg? Um, first of all, this is an extraordinary thing to have a chief executive fighting allegations in a different country. This the whole saga that's gotten to this, to this point. So, good question. I was thinking about this. What's his point today? Um, this should be, I think, 
like a prosecutor's, he needs to make a case that the Japanese authorities are wrong, that there's something wrong with the system. That's a legitimate, you know, uh, platform to take. Uh, I think he's getting into too much detail too soon. Um, that a 20-minute summary of this is what's wrong, right. I'm happy to play this out over time. But he's like, he's trying a case okay. right now this morning. In, in, in the study of this that you have done, and you're truly expert in this, does he hire Sullivan and Cromwell or name another law firm to go out and represent him in Japan or with the Japanese legal system as he is outside of Japan? Can he do that? I don't know. I do know he's been handled by uh, a number of major law firms, including Paul Weiss, um, okay. who were his primary U.S. firm over there. But I think that bridge has been burned. I think any like attempt by right. a firm to, at, at least it's too soon right now. And he's he's getting personal. He mentioned Pearl Harbor, uh, like... Right, you know, he's going uh, ballistic right off the bat. Well, here. Ballistic <laughs> is a professional legal phrase yes. that journalists use. We would not want to use it. Actually, afterthought went ballistic last night. Now that I now that think, think about it, Greg, seriously, here, what's the next step for him after this lengthy press conference and Q and A? Um, this continues to be a public relations battle. Um, he needs to... It's radio. you got to keep talking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's okay. Uh, except you're Please. so thoughtful, you always guide me to be slower. <laughs> but um, uh, he needs to keep up the public relations battle. Right. I think he needs to bring other people in. He has to uh, do a better job or at least continue with trying to demonstrate the, the what he described as the patent unfairness of how he was treated yeah. in Japan. So this is going to go on for some time. I think... Ideally, if you could find a neutral third country like the U.S., where something like this could be adjudicated, uh, that would be a, a good, you know, they, there must be a face-saving way. Right. I think that's what he's going to look for, and the Japanese eventually might look for a face-saving way without them backing right. down completely. Can, can, can he leave and go somewhere? Can he come very quickly here? Can he go to Paris? Can he come to New York? No, he can go to Paris, yes. New York, no, because, because strangely, the United States signed an extradition treaty uh, with Japan just in 2015, uh, along with South Korea. Uh, I'm not. I didn't. I'm not sure why this happened, but the fact that it does have it means that it doesn't mean right. the U.S. will necessarily have to turn him over. But it just, you know, creates a legal mechanism okay. for that to happen. Greg, thank you so much for joining us on short notice, Mr. Farrell, truly expert on the travails of Mr. Gohn. The scope and scale of Africa is extraordinary, and any time we can get a vision into it, it is quite important. There is a gentleman in Nigeria who, through family and his grandfather and great-grandfather, were quite successful in West African business. There is a gentleman in Nigeria who has done better than good. David Rubenstein with a peer-to-peer -peer conversation with Mr. Dangote of Nigeria. Here is Mr. Rubenstein and the scope of Africa. Okay, so in terms of Africa itself, generally, are you bullish on Africa's prospects as a place to, in which to, uh, people can invest, private equity firms or industrial companies to invest? I think I'm very, very bullish uh, when it comes to Africa, and it is the main reason, David, today why we have $20 uh, billion that we're investing all, you know, at a goal, which will finish 
by end of next year, first quarter of, uh, you know, I mean, uh, in the next two years, let's say in the next two years. David Rubenstein speaking with Aliko Dengote. Mr. Rubenstein joins us now. David, what an interesting individual. Give our American audience a little scope and scale of who this gentleman is. Okay, Aliko Dangote is the wealthiest man in Africa, so it's a continent of a billion-plus people, and he is by far the wealthiest person. Range His net worth ranges from 20 to $30 billion, depending on the stock market from mm-hmm. time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Nigerian. His, he was from a very wealthy family, but he was not given money when he started, and he basically built the largest cement business in Nigeria and then the largest cement business in Africa, and he's used that to build into other areas, petrochemicals, particularly he's building a large refinery the largest refinery now in Nigeria. Um, he is a very honest person, very philanthropic. He's very involved with Bill Gates and philanthropic things in right. Africa and around the world. So he's a, a quite impressive individual, very modest and unassuming. In Nigeria, he drives his own car around without security guards. Um, he's yeah. very accessible to people. So he's quite a, a likable person in addition to being very successful. And David, what's so extraordinary, and I'd love for you to comment on this with your expertise at Carlisle, he did what's so hard to do. He didn't sell out to Lafarge years ago, did he? He did not. Um, Lafarge wanted to buy him, and at the time, uh, he probably could have used Lafarge because he was struggling at the beginning. But he... he, he uh built this big business, and it's by far the biggest cement business. Now, he was probably aided by the fact, though he wasn't responsible for it, it's it's not uh, easy to import cement into Nigeria. And so um, by building the biggest cement company in Nigeria, he had a very large market uh, in which to work. But he's built cement businesses in other countries in Africa as well. So very impressive, very smart, low-key. If you were to have dinner with him, you wouldn't realize he's fabulously wealthy or fabulously successful or very well-known in Africa. Very modest and unassuming. David, it's interesting. I'm, this is a fascinating interview from my perspective because I just uh, I was not aware of Mr. Dangote. Is he have any sense that he would like to raise his profile in the West? Well, you may know that uh, from time to time you'll see ads on CNN, Dangote um, Industries and so forth, and those are probably raising his profile a little bit, but most of his investments, I would say, as far as I know, 99% of his investments are really in Africa. Uh, he hasn't really diversified out of Africa yet. He might do that at some point. Um, he has uh, a number of daughters, and they will ultimately mm-hmm. uh, be involved in investing some of his money. Uh, no sons. And he's uh, you know, a, a well-respected person. He doesn't use politics to get ahead. Uh, he knows all the political figures, but he basically built a very big business, and that's the source of his strength. Get one time Time for one more question, David Rubenstein. Sure. And of course, this goes to something John Farrow said to me. <laughs> Farrow emailed in and said, you've got to ask, do you have an update on his desire for the number one Arsenal fan in the world to take out Arsenal? Give us the Rubenstein update. He is uh, fascinated by, uh, by what, we, what is called football, we call soccer. And I would say that uh, um, it's something that uh, has an appeal to people in certain parts of the world that Americans probably can't understand, but it's much bigger to people in Africa or in Europe than football, American football is to us or to baseball is to us. And so he he is a gigantic football fan. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) Exactly. David Rubenstein, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations airs tonight 
on Bloomberg Television at 9 p.m. Wall Street time. Speaking with the Dangote Group founder, president, and CEO, Aliko Dangote. Uh, it's interesting, richest man in Africa and 20 to $30 yeah. billion. Dollars. I, I didn't know about this guy at all. It's just extraordinary, you know, some of well, the wealth I'm that's being do, created in, in Africa. Yeah, and a major shout out to Francine Lacroix has really driven forward the Bloomberg study of what he has done for Nigeria. Paul, this harkens back to when you and I were starting out in international investment. Your only option in most countries countries was buy shares in the phone company right. or buy shares in the cement, cement company. company. Exactly. And that was really it. I exactly. Mean, without exaggeration. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I kind of got an understanding of the cement business, the construction business, when you started looking at Latin America years ago. Uh, and that was one of the ways to play the growth yeah. in developing markets such as Latin America. And, of course, uh, that would uh, obviously apply to Africa as well. So um, not surprising, I guess, if you think about developing markets, developing economies, what do they need to yeah. build? Cement. Maybe that's what Jim O'Neill met when he said brick right <laughs> the brick countries as well anyways david rubenstein uh tonight and through the week uh, with mr dangote on africa thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide i'm bloomberg radio